Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Since the start of Russia's invasion, Ukraine has been pleading for more artillery. But few weapons have been as effective as American-supplied HIMARS rocket launchers. We look at the precision missiles that are changing how the war is fought. And here's a riddle. Where can you find smallpox, herpes, dysentery, Dutch elm disease, and a bit of influenza from Alexander Fleming's nose? No, it's not in the world's most disgusting bus station loo, but in some of Britain's most important collections. First up, though. Protests are not uncommon in China, but when they do crop up, the country's vast security apparatus tends to keep them small and brief. Over the past few months, though, the ruling Communist Party has had a particularly hard time keeping a lid on discontent. Last week, a rare large-scale demonstration sparked by depositors who'd lost money in a banking scandal turned violent. And now, some are taking a less noisy but potentially more damaging course of financial action. They're not paying their mortgages. Hundreds of billions of dollars worth of mortgages. It's enough to worry the Chinese Communist Party, trouble at the heart of the banking and the property sectors, and trouble in the streets. China's property sector is in a bit of a tailspin right now. Over the past year or so, property developers have been restricted on how much debt they can take up. It's very difficult for them to issue bonds now, to get loans from banks. And what that has meant is they can no longer build some of their projects. Don Wineland is our China business and finance editor. China sells most of its homes before they're actually built. This is very typical in China. About 90% of homes were sold this way last year. But after they've sold these projects years in advance, they're struggling to buy the materials and hire workers. That means there are at least hundreds of projects, probably thousands of projects that are stalled around the country. And... Of course, once you've bought your home, you're going to want it delivered to you at some point. And that's just not happening. And so we've found in many cities across China, the home buyers are no longer paying their mortgages. And we've been speaking for a while about the crisis in China's property market. It sounds like that's really coming to a head. Remind us who's involved here. Many listeners might know the name Evergrande. So Evergrande is one of the most indebted property companies in the world. And it has defaulted on its offshore debt. It's really struggling. And it, of course, is tied up in this problem as well. Many of its projects are not being built and many of its customers are no longer paying their mortgages. But 
Evergrande isn't the only problem. Many other property developers have defaulted last year and this year, and there's a fear that many more will do so soon. So is the government worried about this, people just deciding not to pay their mortgages? It is really worried. The government's very sensitive over property in general. It's one of the main drivers of growth in the economy. And a slowdown like this really impacts economic growth. Just to give a sense of the scale of the problem, analysts think up to $300 billion in mortgages might be linked to these stalled projects. That's about 5% of total mortgages in the country. And all of this has really just cropped up over the past week. The pre-sales funds have always been a cornerstone of this market, and nobody really expected them to drop off like this. Really, the news of this only came out last week. And I think a lot of people have been surprised by how quickly and how many people have stopped paying their mortgage. At this point, we're aware of maybe 300 different projects where people aren't paying. That said, there are lots of different types of protests going on this year. There have been lots of angry protesters in Hunan province who have been very upset about losing access to their deposits as well. And so what's happened in Hunan? So in late March, we began hearing reports about thousands of angry protesters gathering in the provincial capital of Hunan province. The city is called Zhengzhou. So it turns out that several banks had absconded with depositors' money and couldn't give it back. What this ultimately culminated in was a very large protest in July where more than a 1,000 people gathered on the street and they were met by people from the security forces. So we've seen videos of quite violent clashes where protesters are being dragged around and punched. This has also attracted a lot of attention in terms of financial stability this year in China. And I think people see some parallels with what's going on with the mortgages as well. In the sense that people want their money's worth or they want their money back. Exactly. So there are lots of people that have put their life savings into property developments. In the Hunan banking scandal, a lot of people have put their life savings into deposits. So you do have hundreds of thousands of people, at least, who are very frustrated about you know, losing lots of money. In terms of what the government's doing about it, the government is now talking with banks and trying to push them to lend more to developers so they can continue to build. They're also considering giving a grace period to some of the people with mortgages that aren't paying right now, just to kind of ease up on the tension in the market. When it comes to the depositors in Hunan province, that's a bit more up in the air. So the government has promised to return a certain level of deposits, but the level's quite low. We've spoken with some protesters, and I think that lots of people will lose lots of money because it's been misappropriated. And frankly, the local government just doesn't have a lot of money to give away. So yeah, I think people are going to lose money, most likely in both these situations. And so in a sense, these kinds of protests are connected. Do you read into them a, a kind of wider risk, a more systemic risk to China? Yeah, it's unclear how these situations will shape up. But I think there are bigger worries about systemic risk here in both these situations. If people stop buying homes because they're worried that they won't be delivered to them, that will cause the property sector to further deteriorate. I mean, this is the engine of the Chinese economy, one of the most important parts of it. If it 
deteriorates further, there's going to be really big growth problems this year. Really, there already are. If there's a run on small banks in the country where people no longer trust in depositing their money, this can really lead to problems. In Hunan, we're only talking about six very small banks. You can imagine if this spread to 10 more here or 20 more there, you would really have an unrest problem around the country. So does this speak to a kind of broader fragility to you to see these things cropping up at this scale in these numbers? And and what does it mean for the Communist Party? China watchers have been worried about bad debt for decades. With the mortgage boycotts and the protests in Hunan, we're really seeing some of these problems spill out into the open. And I think the timing couldn't be worse. You have these severe problems in the banking system and property market. You also have cities sporadically being locked down due to China's zero COVID policy. The economy is really coming under a lot of pressure right now. And all this is happening in the run-up to the party congress. This is the all-important political meeting that should be held this fall. And it's where Xi Jinping will most likely be given a third term as top leader. So all these things combined are really putting the, the leadership under pressure. I think it's bound to be an interesting couple of months. Don, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. In a video released by Ukraine's armed forces, soldiers learn how to use their latest high-tech weapon. The precision HIMARS missiles are part of a $700 million defense package that Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky thanked America for in a nightly address this month. He said supplies of HIMARS and other such weapons would help reduce Russian strikes on the Ukrainian population. And by picking one kind of target in particular, it seems they are having a dramatic effect on the course of the war. I recently came across an old U.S. Army handbook published in 2016, long before this war broke out. And there was a fascinating line in it. Shashank Joshi is our defense editor. It said, Russian forward ammunition dumps, that is, places where you store ammunition near the front lines, are quite possibly the most unsafe places in any war zone. And the reason for that judgment was, it said, these munitions were not stored very well. They were very old. Many of them were dating to the Soviet era. They were pretty fragile. And it described this as a kind of tinderbox ready to explode. And it said that if you target these areas, it will cause the Russians huge problems for their logistics. That 
is now a theory that Ukrainian commanders seem to be doing their best to test. How so? Well, Ukraine's army has a new toy. It's called HIMARS, or the High Mobility Artillery Rocket System. And it's been provided by America. They have about eight of these launchers, four more on the way. Perhaps some of them have arrived by now. And each of those launchers carries a little pod of six GPS-guided missiles. These are accurate out to about 84 kilometers, which is about three times as far as the previous generation of howitzers, which are essentially artillery pieces sent by Europeans and Americans earlier. And they are very good against Russian ammunition dumps? By all accounts. The Ukrainians got these rocket launchers, Jason, in about late June. Ever since then, every morning I've logged on to social media, I've looked at telegram channels, I've looked at what's happening in the war in Ukraine, and almost every day I get a new story of some gigantic Russian ammunition depot exploding in completely spectacular fashion. So, for example, on July 11th, we saw a Russian ammunition depot in a place called Nova Kakovka in southern Ukraine going up like 4th of July fireworks. Really incredible stuff. And then on Monday, we saw another depot in Ryska, which is near Nova Kakovka, again, go up, huge flames leaping into the air. Satellite images show these facilities basically vanishing overnight, because if you blow up a bunch of ammunition, it's clearly going to go boom. I think we've seen at least 20 depots like this go up in flames since the end of June. We've seen other strikes on command posts in Kherson in southern Ukraine that have killed senior officers, including a general. And... This is clearly causing chaos deep behind the front lines. So with all of the Ukrainian calls there have been for more firepower, this is it? This is it, yeah. Ukrainian commanders are absolutely delighted. We and our colleague in Ukraine spoke to the army colonel in charge of HIMARS deployments, and he said, look, this is tilting the war back in Ukraine's favor after they lost the city of Severodonetsk and the twin city of Lysychansk in the last several weeks. They say that not only is this able to very precisely take out these vital Russian nodes well behind the front lines, it's also able to stay immune to what we call counter-battery fire. That is, it can't be hit by the Russian guns because it outranges them and it can fire and move away very quickly. We call that shoot and scoot. And the Ukrainians are using it very cleverly, Jason. So they're using their old rocket launchers, these Soviet-era systems, which are very imprecise. They're using them to confuse and overwhelm Russian air defense systems, which may be protecting some of these bases and these depots. And then they launch the HIMARS rockets, the GPS-guided rounds. So by all accounts, the Ukrainians feel that this is redressing some of the big disadvantage in artillery that they suffered from in the whole period of this war so far, as we've discussed on this show many times. And what scope is there for Russia to to change its tactics in the face of this weapon? Well, to some extent, they can disguise their sites, they can camouflage them, they can break them up into smaller sites. But that is very challenging for the Russians. America's army tends to disperse its ammunition dumps across a number of small sites. Russia's army is and, and has been for many years completely reliant on trains to move munitions and reliant on creating these big depots near railheads where it relies on humans to unload them onto trucks and take them to the front lines. Often it takes over civilian industrial distribution centers. That was fine until HIMARS turned up. If you now create a large number of smaller depots that may be easier to disguise, that's going to make you better protected against HIMARS, but it requires having huge amounts of 
equipment, which they don't have, or huge amounts of manpower, which they don't have, because they're struggling to get enough manpower for this offensive. And if you move these ammunition depots away from the front lines, away from HIMARS, you're also going to need a lot more trucks to maintain the same rate of getting ammunition to the front lines. So yes, they can adapt, but any adaptation is going to jam up their logistics, it's going to cause some other problem. And even if Russia were to do all of those things, that respite might be pretty temporary anyway. What do you mean by that? Well, when America sent these launches, it basically made Ukraine promise that it wouldn't use them against targets on Russian soil because America was worried about escalation. And as a kind of precaution, it didn't give Ukraine the longest range munition in its arsenal, the Army Tactical Missile System, which is called ATACMS. That has a 300 kilometer range. If America were to provide that and the Ukrainians are asking for it, that means every square inch of Russian occupied territory in Ukraine would become well within range of Ukrainian firepower. Now, I don't think there's any clear sign the Americans are willing to send this. They're still worried about escalation. But if they were to do so, pretty much none of Russia's depots or forward headquarters would be safe from this kind of firepower. So how important do you think these things will be going forward? I I hesitate to use the the phrase arms race, but we are hearing that uh, Russia might be looking to buy weapons-capable drones from Iran. Is uh, is this just sort of the next chapter of many in terms of trying to out-firepower one another? I think that HIMARS mobility means that it's likely to be pretty resilient. However, I think you're absolutely right to point to the issue of drones. There's been some fantastic recent fieldwork by the Royal United Services Institute, which is a think tank in London. And what they found was that if Russian artillery spotted a Ukrainian target, like an artillery piece, with electronic warfare and old-fashioned radio direction finding, with acoustic reconnaissance, the sound of the guns, or with radar, that then takes Russian artillery about 30 minutes to hit that gun. In 30 minutes, a HIMARS piece is going to be long gone, right? It'll be as if it was never there. You'll never find it. You'll never hit it. However, if Russia has a drone in the sky, then it takes just three to five minutes to hit that same site. That is going to put those Ukrainian guns at much bigger risk. And so I think what this tells you is that war is never about a kind of wonder weapon that changes the fight by itself. It's a kind of constantly evolving back and forth contest where each side gets a new system, they find some advantage, then the other side gets an advantage and gets the edge. It's a constant back and forth. And I think Russia is not going to simply sit back and take this pummeling. It's going to find a way to try and take the fight back to Ukraine in a really serious way. Shashank, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks as always, Jason. What comes to mind when you think of British culture? Shakespeare's tragedies, certainly. Maybe the symphonies of Edward Elgar or the choral works of Thomas Tallis. Or J.M.W. Turner's Glorious Skies. But that's not the only kind of culture you can find in Britain. When you think of great British culture, you're probably not thinking about E. coli. Catherine Nixie writes about Britain for The Economist. But Britain contains, in fact, some of the world's most important collections of bacteria, viruses, fungi, and cell lines. And these collections are absolutely essential for modern scientific research. What exactly can you find in these cultural collections? 
You get a really wide selection of bacteria. A scientist described it to me as like an Argos catalogue for microorganisms. But instead of garden furniture and men's watches, you get coronavirus, smallpox virus and herpes simplex. And then they've all got prices. So a sample of human coronavirus will set you back £282. That's about $347. A dose of herpes simplex virus and cowpox. You can get those for the same price. And you can get a sample of salmonella for a bit cheaper. That's only £164. But if you want anthrax bacteria, then slightly unsurprisingly, that's a bit more expensive. You have to fork out 321 quid for that. And while its prices are openly available online, you can look up how much their smallpox costs. Its samples are not. To order them, you have to go through several layers of security and quite a lot more security for the nastier ones. They wouldn't even let me see the smallpox. And to see them, you have to have licenses, training, security checks. And Britain's got four of these collections, one each for each of the microorganisms that they're storing. So there's one for bacteria, one for viruses, fungi, another one for cell lines. And then there's other kind of culture collections dotted about the place partly because there was an enthusiast who just kept them, partly because they're leftovers from research labs. But whatever the specialism of the different lab, they all do more or less the same thing. They keep the cultures that matter. And why do these cultures matter? Well, they matter a lot. To study a disease, scientists need reliable samples of that disease. So you need to make sure that you're studying the same salmonella that everyone else is, or you can't compare experiments. And so these are the places that provide them. What they're doing now, though, is slightly different because they were just kind of biological stamp collecting for a long time. Everyone just kept these bacteria. But now that they have DNA analysis, these collections can be deciphered and the history of diseases can be written. And so over the past few years, researchers that the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute in Cambridge, they've been taking samples out of these libraries of bacteria and they've been sequencing their DNA. And people have done this a bit before. They fish up corpses and they take the diseases from their teeth and they grind them down and they find out things about them. But this has never been done to this scale and not reliably with bacteria to this depth in time. So what you get in these libraries, one scientist described it to me as like an ice core of infectious diseases. And the interesting thing about Britain is it's got one of the deepest and most significant bacterial ice cores in the world. So what's stored in Britain's National Bank of Bacteria? This is our oldest bacteria bank, and it was founded in 1920, but it inherited samples from other bacteria libraries before that. So its oldest sample is a vintage 1885 E. coli that they're very pleased with. And it's got some real celebrity strains in it. So it's got some Haemophilus influenza, believed to have come from no less than Alexander Fleming's own nose. And it's also got some vintage dysentery-causing bacteria from the First World War. Far be it for me to cast dispersions on anything that might have dribbled out of Alexander Fleming's very own personal nose. But why keep old samples when new ones are available? Why does the history matter in that sense? If you want to understand your future, you sort of have to understand your past. And history is crucial to understanding disease. And it matters chiefly because the genetic texts of bacteria and viruses are constantly evolving. And what culture collections do is they offer samples of that text that has been frozen in time. So they're not first editions of the bacteria, but they are certainly earlier editions. And so if you take an earlier edition of a bacteria and then you compare it to a current one, you can see how that bacteria is changing. And if it's taken off and suddenly become a pandemic or an epidemic, you can see what changed when and what was its killer change that meant it could suddenly spread around the world. As the man who showed me around that library explained, you don't know what's in any of these there might be something fantastic that could do something amazing for humanity. And in that same lab, behind a locked door, there is a locked safe. And in the locked safe, there is a box. And in the box, there is another box. And in that box, there is a tiny, tiny matchbox. It looks like somebody's sort of put gravy on a glass slide. 
But the label that's written on it in very careful handwriting says that this is Alexander Fleming's other well-known bequest to the world. It's Penicillium Notatum. Catherine, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for stopping by today. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.